0: Good evening, our reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 38 and it can be found on page 42 of the Bibles in front of you in the chairs, that's Genesis chapter 38 beginning at verse 1. At that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hirah. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shulah. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kesib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfil your duty to her as a brother-in-law, to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adalamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Ename, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realising that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, "'What pledge should I give you?' "'Your seal and its cord, and the staff in your hand,' she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was by the road at Ename? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah.
1: Thank you, Sue. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is your gift to us, and we pray that as we Look together at these perplexing verses in your book, that you will speak to us and transform us by your spirit as we hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before the service, someone who's been a Christian a long time said to me, I've never heard this passage preached on before. And I thought to myself, I wonder why? (laughs) It's perplexing and strange, isn't it? In a whole bunch of different ways. First of all, it's perplexing and strange because it breaks up the story. We've just been hearing about Joseph and his dreams and his um, multicoloured coat that's been dipped in blood and given to his dad. And dad has been asked, do you recognise that? Oh yes, it must mean that Joseph is dead. But then Joseph has been sold into slavery in Egypt. Chapter 37, I'm going to need the glasses, verse 36 I think affirmative (laughs) so verse 36 he's been sold into slavery to Potiphar in Egypt chapter 39 verse 1 now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt Potiphar an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials the captain of the guard bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there this whole section of Genesis from chapter 37 all the way through to chapter 50 is the story of Joseph apart from this one chapter which doesn't even mention him strange God hasn't been mentioned at all in chapter 37 but he gets mentioned twice here in chapter 38 both times putting to death the children of Judah the heir of the covenant God keeps killing off his covenant children, we'll come back to why that's significant in a moment but that's perplexing Judah is uh, Not a particularly heroic figure in this story, is he? He holds back uh, from Tamar uh, her rights to be the mother of the child of the promise. Again, we'll come back to that. But he refuses to allow to be done for her what should be done. He sends her off as a widow to her father's house and just forgets about her until he discovers that she's pregnant, at which point he decides he'll have her burned to death. Well, meanwhile, he's been visiting prostitutes whilst he wants to have her executed for prostitution. What is going on? What on earth is this passage about, and why is it here? And I say, I'm glad Stephen gave a bit of a warning. There is at the heart of this story a vulnerable woman who is exploited by a powerful man and abused by her by him. I would say we don't take that lightly as a topic. I, I, I'm not particularly going to major on it as we go through It's not the heartbeat of the the whole thing but I think it's important to note that God is very aware of the things that happen in this dark world and occasionally they're highlighted in his word and what we see is that God cares about Tamar and through Tamar will bring a blessing for her and for the whole human race that I doubt she could ever have imagined. It's occasionally the sort of thing that people like to say about the Bible, that it is patriarchal or misogynistic, that it takes no interest in the concerns of women, or that women are marginalized within its pages. There is one story There is one one hero in this story, and it is the woman. And in her being the hero of this story, she echoes a bigger story in which God is at work through women to bring salvation to the world. There are lots of occurrences in the scriptures of women being oppressed, trodden down, sidelined and ignored. But those are instances that time and again the scripture highlights as a point at which something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. We make a mistake if we think that God is indifferent to such things or indeed that the Bible promotes them. Judah is covered in shame in this chapter, and Tamar in praise. But what is going on? What is God saying through Genesis chapter 38? Why is it in the Bible? Why is it here in the Bible? Well, the story of Judah is very important, it's very significant, because uh, towards the end of the book... Chapter 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, he passes over the first three. They cannot be the ones through whom the the main channel of God's blessing to the world is going to flow because of their wrongdoing. It may astonish you to know, given what happens in this chapter, that Judah is the one who is going to be king. Uh, And Jacob actually prophesies that the scepter will not depart from between the feet of Judah until it comes to the one to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations will be his. There's a prophecy here of a descendant of Judah who will rule over the whole world forever. So Judah becomes a very significant figure. From this point on in the Bible, he actually, although this story is all about Joseph, the the big story in chapter 37 onwards is all about Joseph, the rest of the Bible's story focuses in more and more on Judah and on his offspring, eventually on King David and then on David's uh, descendant, Jesus Christ. So Judah's really important. That's one reason why it's here in this particular spot. Another reason is that it creates a massive dramatic tension, doesn't it? What we're desperate to know at the end of chapter 37 is what is going to happen to Joseph. And with great skill, the writer of Genesis cuts the scene and says, oh, Judah went away from his brothers at this point and he did this, this, and this, and this. And you're left thinking, I guess what the brothers are thinking What's happening to Joseph? What happens next in his story? And you're left with the waiting and the dramatic tension. But there's a bigger context to all of this, isn't there? If you've been with us in the mornings, if we've been working our way through the, the book of Genesis, perhaps some of the themes in this passage already ring a bell. But just in case you haven't, or just in case you haven't, they don't. Uh, let me remind you. We've got to start right at the beginning, where God creates this wonderful creation just by speaking, and uh, He shapes that creation by His Word, and He uh, puts different things in the creation to rule over other bits. The sun and the moon to rule over the day and the night, for instance. But then, uh, the sort of crown of His creating work, He creates. A man and a woman whose job is to fill the earth and subdue it and through their descendants uh, to uh, rule over everything that God has made. But rather than fulfilling that wonderful destiny, what the man and the woman do, uh, egged on by a talking snake, there's strange things in the Bible, they decide That instead of building God's kingdom, they'll build their own. That instead of listening to God's word and obeying it, they will do whatever they like. And the result is a curse. The result is death, ultimately. But immediately it is exile. A break in their relationship with God. And they're sent away from their home in his garden. So for for about the next eight chapters, there's not much in the way of bright spots. One or two little things that hint that God isn't done with humanity yet. But then in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, God takes this man, Abraham and he says to him, Go, I'm sending you to this new country, and I'm going to go with you. I will have a relationship with you. I will bless you. I will multiply you and make you into a great nation. And through you, every nation on earth will be blessed. There's a promise of restoration, of relationship with God, of a, of a place, of a home, uh, and of, again, that idea of his descendants filling the earth in such a way as to bring blessing, just as was promised to the first man and the first woman. And from Genesis chapter 12 onwards, that question of offspring is absolutely paramount. Abraham and his wife Sarah are old; they can't have children. Uh, they've not been able to have children already, but, and, and now they're uh, they're really ancient. And yet, God miraculously provides them with a child, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob, uh, and Jacob is the one who receives the blessing. It's his children who will be the Heirs of the promise. Uh, and now here we are with his children. They're living in the land that God promised to Abraham. But what we saw in chapter 37 is that all is not well, is it? These sons of God's promise, these children through whom God is going to make everything right in the world, are so full of envy and bitterness. That their sibling rivalries lead not to documentaries and book deals, but a decision to commit murder. But in the end, at the last minute, Joseph's brothers, as we saw last week, decide not to kill him, but to sell him into slavery. It's all a mess. It's all a terrible mess. And it's hard to believe at the end of Genesis chapter 37 that God is really going to make the world right through this rabble. And there are various things that sort of they, they seem to keep doing as a family. And one of them is tricking each other with clothing. If you've been coming on, on Sunday morning's last term, you'll have probably noticed that by now. So uh, Jacob tricks his father, into his father Isaac, into giving him the blessing that should have gone to Esau, the older brother, by dressing up as his brother Esau uh, and sort of covering himself in things that made him smell of animals. Uh, and his increasingly blind father says, ah, the smell of my son, it's like the fr- smell of a freshly made field. Oh, um, is that you, Esau? And Jacob says yes. But then Jacob goes to live with his uncle Laban, because understandably Esau's annoyed, uh, and uh, he, he runs away and he goes to stay with his uncle Laban, uh, and his uncle Laban has two daughters, and uh, Jacob is infatuated with one of them. He says, I want to marry Rachel. And Laban says, well, you know, uh, what will you give me in return? Uh, and they agree that uh, Jacob will work seven years And then he can marry Rachel. But then on the wedding night, Laban does to Jacob what Jacob did to Isaac. He covers him. He covers his daughter Leah in clothes that make her look like the bride, that look like Rachel. And he tricks her and Jacob ends up married to the wrong daughter. And has to strike another deal with Laban to get Rachel the wife that he really wanted. And there's a whole mess and, 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 and all kinds of family trauma that results from that particular trick involving dressing someone up as someone else. And then in chapter 37, the chapter we saw last week, what happens? The brothers use Joseph's clothes to trick Jacob into thinking that Joseph is dead. Just look at what they do in chapter 37, verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it was your son's robe. He recognised it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So in this story, when Tamar dresses up, As something she isn't, she takes off her widow's clothes and puts on the garb of a prostitute. By now, the bells are starting to ring, aren't they? Judah's going to be tricked. Just like he tricked his dad, who tricked his dad. It's not a sort of random story, is it? It fits into the pattern. So what's going on? Well, look at uh, the opening verses of chapter 38. We are finally getting to them. But what do you notice? He goes down to stay in this other place. It's still in the promised land, Adullam. It's actually the place where King David will hide out later on. Judah's family has a lot to do with Adullam. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shuah. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now what's significant here is that up until this point, any of the descendants of Abraham, when, when they're looking for a wife, it's been absolutely essential that they do not marry a Canaanite. The people who live in the land that God is giving to Abraham's family. And when Abraham goes looking uh, for uh, a wife for his son Isaac, he makes his servants swear that he will not let Isaac marry a Canaanite. The Canaanites worshipped terrifying fertility gods uh, and other things. They, They murdered their own children. They were incredibly wicked in the eyes of God. And God says to his people, you shouldn't marry them. And so when we're told Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man and married her, immediately your skin starts to crawl. And the thing about Judah's wife here is that she's never given a name. All we're told about her is her ethnicity. She is a Canaanite. So look at chapter 38, verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. No name, just a reference back to her father who was a Canaanite. So these three sons that she bears him it doesn't fit the plan. It doesn't fit the plan of God's people living with and for him to bring about the salvation of the whole world. Judah's going his own way. He's disregarding God, just doing what he wants. And what he wants is the daughter of Shur, so he takes her. And these sons seem to be everything that Abraham was worried about if Isaac had married a Canaanite. So the first one I mean, the, the naming of the funds is, sons is, is sort of interesting, isn't it? You sort of think, you know, there they are, trying to sort of fill in the birth, uh, you know, the, the birth certificate and uh, the registrar says, "Well, what do you want to call him?" "Er." Uh, all right. <laughs> so, "Er," uh, his firstborn, uh, and uh, the, the emphasis is, is there. You can see it in the number of times he's called the firstborn, and just how significant it is to Judah that Ur is his firstborn. This is all about offspring. This is all about inheritance. Well, Judah gets a wife for her, but he's wicked. Suddenly, God sort of appears again. He just sort of pokes his head out. And we're told what he is doing behind the scenes. Ur is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And so God put him to death. We're not told what he did. But given the Canaanite, theme. We're not that surprised. So then, and this is key to the story, isn't it? Uh, and uh, Onan is, um, has given his name to, to something that, well, he's not involved in here. Uh, Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife. Fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. So this is strange to us, isn't it? A very strange tradition indeed. But the younger brother was responsible for providing heirs for an older brother who died. So Judah says to Onan, do that for Ur. Give him an heir. And this is where all the stuff about the royal family that's in the news is is so topical. Because Onan doesn't want someone higher than him in the line of succession, which is what the child produced would be. The child would not be his, it would be his brother's offspring and so would inherit the blessing ahead of Onan. So Onan says, look, I'm going to pretend to do what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to do it. If you're familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, it's a bit like that. They too are struck dead. They pretend to be bringing... uh, the, sale, the, the proceeds of a, a, a sale they've made of, of land to give to the Lord's work, but actually they're really keeping most of it back for themselves. They're pretending to do God's will. They're pretending to be godly, to be holy, but actually they're religious hypocrites. It's a striking thought, isn't it? That actually pretty much the most fatal sin you can commit in the Bible is to be a religious hypocrite. To pretend holiness as a way of covering up something else so Enam won't do what he's supposed to do he pretends and so he also dies and so Judah will not give Tamar to the third son because he thinks that she's a sort of you know, Mrs X figure, a kind of uh, terrifying and sort of black widow if you like her husbands keep mysteriously dying I'm not going to let her anywhere near Sheila. So he says to go off uh, and live as a widow until he's old enough, but even when he's old enough, nothing happens. And so Tamar, when the moment comes, develops the most audacious scheme imaginable. And it could so easily have ended in her death. She dresses up as a prostitute, knowing the kind of man that Judah was. I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? When, he, when she hears that his wife has died and the period of mourning has come to an end, she knows, well, I know exactly what, what to do. I'll dress up as a prostitute. He'll sleep with me. I'll get a pledge from him. And then when the pregnancy shows... So she takes his, his, cord, his cord, his seal, and his staff, like taking his driving license and his passport, really. And then she waits. And when the pregnancy begins to show, and Judah is told, immediately he calls for her execution. And it begins. You're on a knife edge. Tamar is led out to be burned. And she says, okay, fair enough. It's a fair cop. But just before you do it, see, do you recognize these It's almost exactly what the brothers have just said in the previous chapter to poor old Jacob. Do you recognise these by any chance? And then just as uh, Jacob recognised the the coat, Judah recognises his staff, his seal and cord. And it's in that moment that everything changes. Look at what happens. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her my son Shadah. And he did not sleep with her again. Finally, he has the offspring he so desired. Perez and Zerah. And Perez would become an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, to Judah is given the thing he desired more than anything else. The thing he was willing to oppress Tamar to try to protect. A son. And God has given it to him through the woman he was trying to oppress and was even prepared to kill. Does that ring any bells? Because you see, that is the story of Joseph. Joseph, the one oppressed by his brothers, sent into exile in Egypt, who they would have killed. But who there in Egypt becomes the source of their salvation a story we'll see as we go on. This story of Judah and Tamar is actually like a a kind of mini version, a kind of shrunk down version of the whole Joseph story. One of Jacob's sons does wrong by someone who becomes their salvation. And of course that Joseph story is like a mini version of the story of God's dealings with humanity. He sends his son into the world, And recognising him, we killed him. And through his suffering and his death, he brought salvation to the whole world. There in the background, God is playing the same old tune over and over. He does two people so much better than they deserve. He takes the worst moment in Judah's life and through it brings salvation to him. And it's not just the giving of these children. It is spiritual life for Judah too. You see, in that moment where he says, she is more righteous than I, I think what you're observing is the turning point in Judah's life. It's repentance. You see, repentance is recognising the reality of your sin, of your wrongdoing, of, of the fact that you're actually turned completely the wrong way around when it comes to God. Repentance is being confronted by what is wrong in your heart and in your actions and turning around and putting your trust in God. Later on in the story, Judah is willing to offer his own life for his younger brother Benjamin. He is a completely transformed figure by this story. That's why for the sake of his story it has to be included. But it's also for the sake of Tamar's story. If you would not mind just flicking over to Ruth chapter 4, perhaps someone could give me a page number because I've only got my own Bible with me. When you get there just let me know. But anyway, let me just read this to you. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Already by the time the people of God are beginning to get into the promised land, at the end of the period of the book of Exodus, Already, Tamar is a legend. To be blessed is to be like Tamar. Out of that terrible family mess comes the ideal family. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. If we look on to at Matthew chapter 1, and the story of the birth of Jesus... What's striking about Matthew's, what's called a genealogy, a a sort of list of ancestors for Jesus, is these women who keep popping up and they're unexpected women and the first of them is Tamar, the father of Perez and Zerah, that's Matthew chapter 1 verse 3. The next is Rahab who was not uh, born a Jew, but who recognised the glory of the covenant and came in. Same is true for Ruth. These are unexpected people who recognize the value of God's promises and say, I want that more than I want anything else. And then you get to the end of it all. Matthew chapter one, verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Tamar, I think, is the first and clearest first example of the precursors of Mary that you find in the Old Testament of the Bible. When God pronounces a curse, he curses the serpent who led Adam and Eve astray. And this is what he says, Genesis chapter 3 verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right at the very beginning of the story is the promise that through a woman, will come salvation. The serpent and the woman are at enmity and she will produce an offspring that will crush the head of the devil forever. The woman, Genesis 3 points forward to, is Mary. It's her offspring that crushes the serpent's head, that puts an end to the curse, to death, to sin and hell. It's him, Jesus. And Tamar? She too, like Mary, recognises the value of the promises of God and says yes to them and is willing to risk her, I mean, get this, she's willing to risk her life And she came that close to dying. Just to be one of the women in that list. She's absolutely the hero of the story. So, time is gone. What does all this mean for us? We're going to go now into a a chance to, to just reflect on all of this. Here are some ways that I think you might like to do that. First of all, and this is the big picture thing, and this is so valuable to us, just see how kind and gracious God is in the background of all of this. Through Judah's biggest mistake, he brings his salvation. Through the worst thing that the human race has ever done, Crucifying the Son of God, God brought about our salvation. The good news of Jesus is not just for people who've got it right. In fact, it's not for people who've got it right. It is for broken, failing, weak, sinful people who've got it really wrong. It's for Judah. It's for me. It's for you. And so it may be that actually what you need to do tonight is just to be able to say to God, Thank you. I keep thinking that it's about what I have to do, but actually you've accepted me because you're gracious. It may be that like Judah, actually God somehow is confronting you with what's wrong in your life. And this is the moment for repentance and for turning round. It may be that there's something else that's going on in this strange but wonderful passage that you need to respond to.